this is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. Hello? Hey, this is Jim O'Donnell. Jim, how are you? Good. How about you? I'm doing okay. I, I actually got up to the mountains yesterday. To, Michael Cotis is a Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist and author and the former deputy director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He was the winner of the 2018 Colorado Book Award for General Nonfiction for his book, Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame, which was also named one of the 20 best nonfiction books of 2017 by Amazon. Michael, thank you for taking the time to come on the Taos Land Trust podcast this week. Well, thanks for having me, and I just wish I could be on some Taos public land. Yeah, it's the public land around uh, northern New Mexico has been a savior for my family during this um, quarantine time period. We are out hiking or biking literally every day, and, and it keeps us sane. So thank God for public lands. Great that you've got that resource. I'm fortunately in Colorado and have some of my own land to visit too. Speaking of public lands, I want to just dive right into your book, Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. As you and I have talked before, this could be a dry summer, um, heated up really fast and, um, and seems to dry and seems to have been drying out pretty rapidly, despite the fact that we had a decent snowpack. Um, land managers here in New Mexico are concerned about um, potential for a catastrophic wildfire, um, and combining that with um, <laughs> the coronavirus epidemic, it, it, it could be a big problem. So, so what is a megafire? Well, the U.S. Forest Service defines a megafire as any fire that is bigger than 100,000 acres. Um, I uh, argue that that's not the best way to determine how mega a fire is. Um, we've always had really big fires, some of them over 100,000 acres in size, in you know remote areas and wilderness areas. And um, we also have uh, smaller fires, sometimes much smaller fires, that uh, you know burn into communities, uh, destroy homes, kill people, cost us lots of money. And I think those are probably a lot more mega than a fire that's bigger than 100,000 acres, but burning in a very remote wilderness where such fires have always burned. So um, there you know, is the size measurement of megafires, and then there's the impacts measurement of megafires. And I think the impacts are the one that's uh, the measurement that's more important to look at. I guess what criteria then do you use to define a megafire according to their impacts? Well, you know, uh, for instance, I've written quite a bit about uh, the um, the death of the Granite Mountain hotshots uh, in, in Yarnell, Arizona, and that was quite a small fire. That would not come anywhere close to meeting the U.S. Forest Service's uh, measure of impacts of a wildfire, but it killed 19 of our best firefighters in the country and uh, did a devastating damage to the budgets and finances of the communities that they were from, uh, that, that those, uh, you know, the Prescott, Arizona, where those hotshots were based, will be dealing with for decades. And so that's, that's just one example of the impacts that we're looking at. You can also look at places like, you know, where the campfire burned in California, and obviously, you know, the death of 85 people, that's, that's pretty mega in my mind. And again, that's not a fire that met the Forest Service standard for a megafire. And then you also have um, all kinds of issues related to that. For instance, um, you know, Pacific Gas and Electric, the power company there is the largest um, utility of its kind in the country. And uh, it's in bankruptcy over the people that, and, and, that as fires have killed and the properties that they have destroyed. And that's led to huge blackouts that um, Pacific Gas and Electric is imposing on California to prevent starting more such fires. And so I see those as really mega impacts, um, you know, b both the costs and what it's doing to, um, you know, the, the families and the communities where these people live, but also the, the trickle-down effects that will go on for decades with uh, the electrical grid in California and these blackouts and, and issues like that. 
Yeah, I'd like to to come back to that point about the um, the utilities in California and and talk about how that might impact um, New Mexico and Colorado. I, I did have a question. I, I was a raft guide up in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, um, the summer that the Waldo Canyon fire. Um, no, it wasn't the Waldo Canyon fire. It was the um, the Storm King fire. The Storm King fire, correct? Yeah, um, the Storm King fire came into or threatened the town of Glenwood Springs, Colorado. I was a raft guide up there that summer, and remember the day that that fire overwhelmed those um, those firefighters as they tried to escape. But as I recall, it wasn't that big of a fire either. Right. It was a very small fire. Um, and, uh, you know, in an area where there wasn't a lot of resource at risk, um, as far as, you know, homes and and things that we really wanted to protect. And, uh, that, uh, was another fire where, um, the impacts, um, uh, went on for years. In fact, you know, we're still seeing them now, um, you know, 20 years later. What type of impacts? Well, in the case of, um, the, um, the Storm King fire, you know, one thing that happened with that, and there are, are myriad, as there always are, with disasters like that, was that they didn't have large air tankers um, available that they thought they would have available. Um, you know, basically C-130 military aircraft that were supposed to be available. And when they looked into that, they discovered that although uh, the contractors that had these planes were supposed to have them uh, available uh, exclusively to fight wildfires in the U.S., they discovered that they were hauling fish overseas and and being rented out to foreign governments for work in those countries and consequently weren't here to fight um, fires. And uh, that led to a number of reforms in how we manage aircraft for wildfires. Um, and it also uh, made us think a lot about, you know, are, you know, should we be sending in firefighters to uh, to battle these fires when there aren't a lot of homes uh, immediately at risk and things like that? Um, the, it also uh, affected how we um, actually on the ground fight these fires. And that was, uh, you know, around the time that I actually worked as a, as a forest firefighter. In fact, we, my crew hiked up and saw where those firefighters had been killed a few years later in basically a, a uh, uh, an effort to educate firefighters about what had happened. And uh, now there are, uh, you know, uh, policies in effect to prevent firefighters from putting themselves in this situation where there's the chance of a fire getting below them on a slope with, you know, really flammable fuels like that, because that's what happened to those firefighters. They were cutting a fire line on one slope. The fire was burning on a slope that was facing it and jumped in a way that it was below them. And, you know, fire can run much faster uphill and uh, we run a lot slower uphill. And so it changed the way that we think about where we'll put firefighters. Have there been any fires that have impacted the way communities, counties plan their land use ordinances, their zoning, their their general planning, where they put allow, where they allow developments, um, where they don't allow developments, and how they allow those developments to happen? You, you know, I, I think of of Colorado Springs uh, and the Black Forest area, um, that fire that was burned through there several years ago, and. Um, and a lot of folks mentioned at the time it was kind of a disaster waiting to happen because you had all these homes built in in a in an area that was prone to forest fire. Yeah, and and that's a problem throughout the West, um, uh, and, and and it's been a, a very difficult problem to deal with. There are certainly communities that are are trying to take this into account, but of course, no county wants to turn away development. They, they want the tax base and they need the tax base. So they tend to approve things um, and be pressured to approve things without necessarily thinking about the disaster they may face. And one reason for that is that when you have a fire like, say, the Black Forest Fire, where you have uh, you know hundreds and hundreds of homes that are just mixed in with a very flammable forest in a way where it's very, very difficult to protect those homes or to stop a fire uh, from destroying properties, um, that fire basically was paid for by the federal taxpayer at large. Um, because it becomes a federal incident. Um, and the county doesn't bear those costs. 
of dealing with uh, that fire. They bear some of the cost, but not the overall cost. And so uh, there's a, you know kind of a perverse incentive there to counties to allow development in dangerous landscapes because they know they aren't going to bear the full cost of any disaster that might happen there. And and that's something that that um, communities you know some communities through the West are starting to try to confront and to and to deal with, um, but. You know, dealing with that is very expensive. Um, first of all, you know, you may uh, try to restrict development in certain areas that you would hope to develop, and that's going to cost you tax base. Or you will require um, firewise construction and uh, uh, development in keeping with the landscape that you're in to prepare for the wildfire that is inevitably going to burn in these places. So, you know, you require people to build with metal roofs and to have special venting on their house that will keep embers out. Um, and you also require uh, things like, you know, keeping your propane tank uh, buried or far from the house and you can't have your wood pile next to the house. And then most importantly, you, you know, try to encourage or require maintenance of the property so that you have to, you know, trim trees or cut down trees that are close to homes, you know, limb up branches. So it's kind of like the natural fire cycle would have in a lot of these forests. So there aren't a lot of low branches on the trees uh, so that a grass fire could climb up into the trees and turn into a crown fire. Uh, and also just sweeping the needles off your porch and cleaning out your gutters. Um, and, and all of those things are first expensive you know it makes uh the development in these areas much more expensive so the houses are more expensive and and that that's a problem for a lot of people and it's also kind of a a, a confrontation to the philosophy of the west where you know people don't like being told what they should have to do with their properties in a, in a lot of parts of the west and trying to um impose codes and ordinances in how they build and how they are going to maintain their property is not very popular in a lot of areas in the West. And so that's been a very difficult aspect of that as well. Yeah, I find that interesting that it, that um, it's, I guess it's something I've always found interesting about the West is, is yes, there's that, that tendency towards this individualism and the, um, you can't tell me what to do with my land, but then when I get myself into trouble, I need you to bail me out. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, I don't want to you know, turn it into a political discussion, but how many people are, you know, anti-government until they need the government to come and keep their house from burning down? Is this kind of analogous to, to, to you know, building in a floodplain or building um, on the coast where we're going to see sea level rise? It is. Um, and, and we've dealt better with with flooding issues and, and flood insurance than we have with fire. But you know, we talk about floodplains, and now a lot of planners talk about fireplains as well, where you can look through a landscape and you can see how often this area is prone to flooding, and you can plan for flooding there. And we're just coming around to where we can look at a landscape and see, well, you know, the natural fire cycle in this forest is for it to burn pretty big every 50 years or so. We need to plan for that as well. Um, but but we are starting to think in those terms, and some communities are doing a great job at that. And give me uh, an example of one or two communities that are really forward-looking in this uh, regard. Well, you know, one um, area that you brought up was Colorado Springs. And when the Waldo Canyon fire burned into Colorado Springs and burned into the city yeah. in Mount, the Mountain Shadows neighborhood, which was absolutely tragic, most of the people that lived there had no idea that they lived in the wildland urban interface. And, you know, they were living on, you know, paved streets with city services and most of the things that burned around their house, be it trees or cedar rail fences, were things that they had put there, were landscaping. Right. Um, but a few days before that fire burned into Mountain Shadows, another neighborhood in Colorado Springs was threatened by that fire. And they had been very proactive about cutting fire breaks. Uh, managing what kind of plants you could plant around your house and uh, requiring that people build with certain types of building materials and in certain types of uh, method method methodology method <laughs> I'm not speaking very well here but <laughs> in, in in firewise methods right um, 
And the fire came up to that neighborhood and it slowed down when it got to the neighborhood. It didn't have uh, the uh, advantageous fuels to carry it into the neighborhood. And that allowed firefighters to stop the fire from getting into that neighborhood. And so none of those homes burned. Um, And so that was seen as a great success. Yeah, absolutely. I I just remember one of my cousins lost um, her home in Mountain Shadows during that fire. And what I remember her saying is um, that she just had no idea. Like she never imagined that 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 could happen. Yeah. And 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 I think that's that was the case with pretty much everybody who I spoke with there. Um, That, you know, in fact, one couple I interviewed um, had moved there after their house was threatened by the Hayman fire in a more rural area of Colorado. And they moved to this neighborhood specifically because they thought it was safer from wildfire. Um, So, uh, you know, it's uh, one of the aspects of our, our fire crisis is so few people recognize the hazard. And one community that doesn't recognize that are a lot of people that live in in more urban areas. And uh, we see this in the fire, the Tubbs fire that burned into Santa Rosa, California and burned Coffee Park. Um, Again, none of those people thought that they lived uh, with a risk of wildfire coming in and burning their house down. But once these fires get into a community like that, well, the fuel um, source changes. Instead of jumping from tree to tree, it's going to jump from house to house because the fuels are more available there and they burn faster. And, uh, you know, in Colorado Springs and in California, I've seen uh, these scenes where houses are burned right down to their foundation. There's absolutely nothing left. But the trees around the house are still green because fire has now moved to the easier fuels, which are the houses. And the other aspect of that um, that we saw in Colorado Springs and we saw again in Santa Rosa is the idea of what an ember attack can do as far as launching um, ignitions into, uh, into a city. So, um, you know, uh, we've seen, you know, these 60-mile-an-hour winds hit a burning forest that may be quite a ways away from a city, but is launching firebrands, you know, say burning embers the size of your fist, you know, miles away from that burning forest to land in the city that thought that they were totally uh, not threatened by this fire and, and ignite houses. Hi, this is Christy Nortez, Executive Director of the Taos Land Trust. For 30 years, we've been keeping working lands in working hands. To do that, we need your help. We need your cash. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thank you. This is Jim O'Donnell, and you're listening to the Taos Land Trust podcast, where we talk about land, water, culture, and other issues facing northern New Mexico and the West in general. I'm talking with Michael Cotis. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist and author and uh, an editor at Inside Climate News. He's also the author of Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. So, Michael, are, are these megafires becoming more common? Um, they are. And if we want to go back to the Forest Service measure of a megafire, prior to 1995, in the Forest Service record, and so that's not all of history in America prior to our development of it, but in, you know, in the time that the U.S. Forest Service was really involved in fighting and managing wildfire, um, we averaged about one fire a year that was 100,000 acres or larger, up to, say, about 1995. Since then, well, it, you know, in this century, we've averaged nearly 10 fires a year of that size. Um, so uh, we uh, have seen a very distinct spike in the increasing number of very large wildfires in, in the United States. And I think then the first thing people would ask is why? So there are a few drivers, and I think of them under four different umbrellas of topics. And the first one is forest management. And uh, down in New Mexico and Arizona, 
that's a really big issue. And, and uh, in, in that area, what we talk about a lot is the excess suppression of wildfires. Uh, you know, we put out every natural wildfire uh, uh, with great effectiveness for about a century. And uh, in a lot of these forests, particularly the ponderosa pine forests that are so common here in Colorado and very common down there in, in New Mexico and in Arizona, they had um, low-intensity ground fires every, as, in some forests as often as every two years. Um, and certainly as often as every 10 years. So if you think in terms of putting out every natural fire over the period of a century in a forest that naturally burned every 10 years, it's not difficult math to figure out that you're going to have exponentially more fuel in that forest. And so these forests became very overgrown. And in some uh, forests in Arizona that have been studied compared to what they were like in the 1800s, they have up to 40 times more trees in them today than they used to have. Um, sometimes it's what we plant in our forests, um, you know, that we create uh, forest plantations for, for timber operations or, say, overseas, lots of uh, uh, palm oil plantations and so forth. But anyway, this idea of forest management, how we have changed the structures of our forests have made a lot of them a lot more prone to burn and to, pr to burn big. The second driver um, that I've dealt with a lot is uh, what we were just talking about is development. Um, the U.S. Forest Service today estimates that more than a third of U.S. homes are in what they call the wildland urban interface, which is where development homes back up to a flammable landscape, be it a forest or a grassland or, or some other um, landscape, vegetated landscape that has a fire rotation that goes through it. Um, that's 44 million homes um, and uh, that, that are at risk of burning in a wildfire. Um, and when we develop those areas, when we put our homes and our communities and our infrastructure into a vegetated landscape like that, we also tend to become the primary fire starter in that landscape. So uh, along with all of these homes that we, that, that we have at risk now, we also um, are starting a lot more fires. And across the country, over a 20-year period, uh, research by some scientists I work with um, determined that about 84% of wildfires were started in one way or another by humans. Um, certainly, there's arson and people throwing a cigarette out the window of their car that contributes to that, but they're the minority. Um, power lines, like we talked about in California, start a huge number of fires, sparks from vehicles. And in fact, some of our landscapes have become so dry that there are three reports that I've got out of Southern California where wildfires were started by golfers who hit a rock with their golf club on the golf course and that single spark from a golf club hitting a rock went into dry grass and started a wildfire, one of which burned down an apartment complex and killed a guy. That's incredible because it, it says to me that th these systems are, are, are in such a precipice just waiting to blow up. Yeah, we have, we have lots of landscapes that are very, very vulnerable to wildfire. Um, and the the what all they need is a spark well there's only one natural igniter of wildfires of note and that's lightning so if you see a wildfire in a time of year where you don't have thunderstorms or you see a wildfire and there haven't been clouds in the sky in the past week and no lightning to speak of then that has to be a human start and that also speaks to the fact that we've changed our fire seasons hugely. Um, and one fire season that we've changed is the ignition season, so that we have lots of areas that have you know, tender, dry, flammable vegetation in them that aren't getting thunderstorms, or it's a time of year when they don't get thunderstorms, but they're still seeing a huge increase in wildfire. So those are all human starts, and it's basically us expanding the fire season because we can start fires when lightning won't. Um, and then that all leads into the third kind of umbrella topic, um, which is a very big one, is climate. And so we're seeing um, a distinct uh, climate driver 
on our increase in wildfire, and not just in, in this country, but people probably remember the horrible Australian wildfires just a few months ago, uh, where climate was very strongly implicated. And, you know, it's much drier, it's much hotter. That means the fuels are going to be that uh, much more available to burn. And here in the U.S., and particularly down there in New Mexico where you are, um, one way to look at the climate impacts on wildfire, and there, there are myriad, but one of the most obvious is to just look at the snow-covered peaks that you've got around you right now. Well, a snow-covered peak here in Colorado or in New Mexico or in California is effectively a trickle reservoir to keep the forests below it moist. And when we get less snow and that snow comes later in the year and it melts off earlier in the year, then those forests are available to burn um, uh, for a much longer season. And, uh, you know, our fire season throughout the U.S. is... I believe the last statistic I saw was about 78 days longer, U.S.-wide, um, just due to the expansion of the, uh, of the dry season in so many areas of the United States. And in some places, we're talking about more than 100 days longer with, that these forests are available to burn uh, due to climate impacts on moisture largely from snowpack. Yeah, that's that's incredible because that that has impacts on not only the landscape and communities, but budgets and how and how we spend our money. Um, absolutely, and and that's another way to look at our fire crisis is how much it's costing us. So, um, in uh, 1995, the U.S. government or the U.S. Forest Service spent about 16% of its budget dealing with wildfires. That includes preparing for wildfires, fighting wildfires, and recovering from them afterwards. Um, in uh, 2017, uh, they spent more than 60% of their budget dealing with wildfires. Um, uh, the Forest Service did. Um, uh, you know, if you want to look at bigger numbers than... Uh, in the early 90s, the U.S. government spent about $300 million a year dealing with wildfires. And in bad fire years like we've had recently in 2017, 2015, uh, that number easily tops $3 billion um, that, that we pay um, at the federal level to deal with wildfires. And that's before we start dealing with the, the municipal and county and state level. And is this what you call the, the fire industrial complex? That's a huge part of it. So that money, you know, uh, more than half of it generally goes to the private sector. And we have developed huge businesses that are uh, uh, basically built around fighting wildfires. Um, and obviously, we need to fight a lot of these fires. You know, if a fire is, a, you know, is threatening a city, yeah, we need to deal with that. But uh, because there's so much money involved in it and people's livelihoods tied to it, it drives us to um, spend a lot of money, invest a lot of money in fighting fires that it might be better for us to let burn, that might be better for the environment or that ecosystem if we let it burn. But, you know, if you've invested money in a bulldozer or an airplane or you're one of the people that owns one of the mobile commissaries, to feed firefighters or the mobile laundries to keep things clean in a fire camp, then you want to fight every fire because you always want to be working. Um, and so, you know, the amount of money really has a huge impact on uh, the decisions that we make about fighting wildfire. And that's the fourth umbrella topic is this idea of the economics and politics behind wildfire, which have become you know, really, really big. You only have to look at a couple of our president's tweets about California and wildfire to see how politicized um, the wildfire issue has become. Yeah, ab absolutely. And and the solutions to it have become highly politicized also. Absolutely. You know, and, and you've seen a lot of that in, in New Mexico, where you had a, a state representative just a few years ago who was pushing to go back to what was called the out by 10 a.m. policy, where basically it was a zero tolerance policy for natural wildfire um, that has been, you know, widely discredited by scientists for decades now. Um, and, you know, that's just one example of how um, the money and, the, you know, the drama, the impacts of 
wildfire has really become um, a political, um, uh, uh, you know, ping pong game. You know, it's really become very politicized. So in general, what type of fires, or let's put it this way, when should we allow fires to just burn, even if they are a megafire um, size-wise? And when do we want to put the efforts into, into fighting them? Well, you know, one thing that, that ha- positive thing that's happened in the last several years is uh, the idea that we don't have to look at least from the, the firefighting response level at every fire as being either good or bad, that there can be good and bad aspects to any fire. And so now we can fight fires for what they call multiple objectives. And that means that maybe on one flank of a fire that's burning into an overgrown forest that is very fire dependent and there are animals and species in there that actually need fire to come through to clean out some of this excess vegetation and possibly, you know, give them a better habitat to live in, that we can let that fire burn there. But on another flank of the fire that may threaten a community or a watershed that we're very dependent on, we can fight it very aggressively. Um, So, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that almost every vegetated landscape is dependent on fire to some degree or another and related to fire to some degree or another. And if we completely exclude fire, remove fire from a lot of these landscapes, they are going to turn into a different kind of landscape. And uh, that's not necessarily good for all kinds of uh, resources that we're dependent on, say our watersheds, but it's also not necessarily good for the other things that live there. Um, And it's very well documented that uh, there are a lot of species. One uh, that's very interesting is the black-backed woodpecker, which is a woodpecker that fell into steep declines because of how many fires we put out, because it actually feeds in snag forests. So the most extremely burned forests is its habitat. That's where it finds the insects and the foods that it depends on. And it nests right next to those so that it has easy access to its food. So if we have less forest that's burned like that, that species is not going to do well. And there are many, many animal and plant species that really need fire to come through very regularly. And in fact, some of our trees, you know, from you know, redwoods to lodgepole pines have serotonous cones that won't reproduce unless it has fire. You know, the fire comes through, loosens the wax on the cones, the cones then drop their seeds, and the seeds really want to grow in recently burnt ground. So we need fire for those forests to be healthy and for the species that are dependent on them to be healthy. We also need fire to regulate itself. Um, Fire is often called a self-regulating process. So if you have a fire that's burning at a time of year when it's less likely to blow up big and bad and to be really destructive, um, and you let that fire burn, it makes it less likely that that forest is going to burn in a really bad megafire when conditions are worse. So, uh, you know, letting fires burn at times of year when they're going to be manageable, it makes it far safer at times when the fires wouldn't be manageable. So we've talked a little bit about how communities can um, can look at their land use plans or their zoning regulations and requirements to potentially um, ameliorate the effects of of forest fires and if they if the forest fire comes to their door and and those those seem to be expensive and run counter to western culture and western ideas of of how we run or how we control individual privately owned pieces of land but there's this other aspect that's going to force communities to do something and it it goes back to what we talked about earlier on with the uh, the utilities like PG&E in California right there's this issue of liability so when it comes to say utilities or other corporate entities that have an impact on the frequency and the location of forest fires how is liability and cost driving changes there well it's certainly going to change how we think about distributing electricity throughout the West. 
because it's not just California that is confronting more and more power line ignited fires. That's an issue in New Mexico. It's an issue in Arizona. It's an issue up here in Colorado. Um, and, uh, you know, all of those states have seen disastrous wildfires started by power lines. So, um, you know, it's not just going to be PG&E, although their situation was unique um, for any number of reasons. Um, but, we're, we, you know, we're going to have to start thinking about uh, how we uh, generate electricity. We'll also have to think about and, and distribute electricity. But we'll also have to think about, you know, the transportation sector, you know, um, and, you know, uh, construction. Um, you know, you know, construction equipment starts lots of fires as well. So uh, as things dry out and become more flammable, we're just going to have to be more careful in a lot of the things that we take for granted in the West. Um, so, so that's one aspect of it. You know, another aspect of it is the idea that um, we're not going to be able to solve these problems just by suing our way out of them. You know, there's not always going to be one person to blame. And so when we go and say, well, this power line started that fire, we should sue this, uh, you know, uh, uh, electrical company. You know, that may well be true, but it doesn't change the societal problem that we've got these power lines, some of which were hung 100 years ago or more, all through our flammable forests in the West. And, there, the, you know, that doesn't do very much to reduce that threat, to just sue one power company. You know, we need to think in terms of societal changes and big infrastructure changes uh, and, and big changes to how we live in the West. And that's one thing that I think, you know, uh, from the power, you know, the power company executive right down to the individual homeowner, we can start considering is how are we going to live with wildfire? How are we going to live with this natural process that is effectively a weather process in the West that is becoming much more volatile? Um, and we're not going to do that just by holding individual property owners or individual companies um, liable for that. Um, you know, sometimes they're liable. Sometimes they should be sued. But we're still going to have to change the way we live in the West to uh, prevent these kinds of disasters. And that's more of a societal thing. That's not being able to point your finger at one person who's at, at, you know, at fault. That's actually looking at us as a society and saying we have to prepare for this rapidly oncoming change that we have throughout the West. And are there any utilities out there that are starting to look at this or communities that are starting to look at this. I'm always trying to find a, a positive example out there. I know that um, the issue with PG&E in California is is pretty tense now because, as you said, they're, they're literally shutting a lot off electricity to thousands of homes on certain days um, in order to avoid uh, sparking any sort of forest fire. Is there anybody else or even is PG&E looking at um, some of these different alternatives to energy transportation? Um, yeah, the, I mean, they definitely are. You know, the Arizona Public Utility, I know, has tripled the size of its unit that deals with fire from power lines. And some of that just is more, you know, legwork and, and, and getting your hands dirty going out and clearing vegetation around power lines and things like that, which we would expect, but again, won't solve the underlying problem. But some of it is also thinking in terms of how do we distribute this energy differently. And in some areas, yeah, you can bury the power lines. Um, and that, that can, you know, end the problem right there. If the power line's underground, it's not likely to start a wildfire. But it's also very expensive. It would just be billions of dollars in California to bury all the power lines because so many of them, particularly the big high voltage ones go through really mountainous rocky terrain and how are you going to bury a power line that goes over the sierra mountains um but uh you know there's also smaller um utilities um you know one thing that um was pointed out with the pg and e case in california you know it's a huge huge utility and so when it does a blackout it's got to turn off the power to a, a big range of, of customers. And one thing to recognize with that is that, yeah, I mean, you're cutting off people who are dependent on that electri electricity for medical equipment, 
or for other things that keep them alive. So it's almost like, you know, they're choosing to put people's lives at risk in a controlled way to prevent putting people's lives at risk in an uncontrolled way, you know, with a wildfire. Um, and the other thing to, to note about that is that even though they had these blackouts last summer, they still had their power lines start wildfires on the days that they were doing blackouts in areas that they hadn't turned off. While in other areas, in this vast area that they turned off the power to, it wasn't even high firewood. You know, and these people didn't need to have the power turned off at all, but they can't turn off just one little area that has a big fire problem that day. They have to turn off the whole region. Um, but at the same time, in Southern California, the utility that serves the San Diego area actually has started doing this even before PG&E was doing it. And they've planned their grid out differently so that they can be much more precise in the area that they turn the power off to. And there's, they're doing blackouts as well, but they can pinpoint those blackouts to, hey, we've just got bad fire weather in this county. We're just going to turn off that county or this portion of that county and only for this little period of time. So they're, they're doing kind of the same thing that PG&E is doing, but they're doing it at a much more focused precise, granular level and having much greater success with it. So um, sometimes it just means taking a policy that we're using in kind of a very big, broad brush and being much more precise and systematic about it. I heard this morning on the radio, someone mentioned that the coronavirus pandemic has really just exposed um, the weaknesses in the way we've done things for a long period of time. And it seems to me that climate change um, is, is doing that also. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the coronavirus pandemic um, is going to interact with climate change in our response to wildfire this year, probably more dramatically than in any other realm that we deal with. Um, uh, first of all, firefighters generally have to work in fairly close quarters with one another. Fire camps are notorious for spreading disease anyway, you know, because you all have to thousands of people having to eat together in the same commissary and sleeping in tents and so forth. But also firefighters um, are more vulnerable to the disease because we've discovered that, you know, because this is a respiratory disease, people who have breathed more particulate matter, PM 2.5 as it's called, um, are more vulnerable to the respiratory effects of the COVID virus. And uh, firefighters breathe, you know, during their careers breathe huge amounts of, of particulate matter and often already have somewhat compromised lungs from the amount of smoke that they've been breathing. So you know, we've got a population that's going to be very difficult to keep safe while they respond to wildfires, who are also more vulnerable to the disease. Um, so that's really going to complicate our wildfire fighting this year. So Michael Cotis, you're not only um, the author of Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame, uh, and several other books, you're now a senior editor at um, Inside Climate News. Um, and and so we, we've we've kind of started going more into this this climate change how we're talking about i guess this nexus between the coronavirus pandemic and climate change and the forest fires at the moment but how do you feel that that the coronavirus pandemic um what can it teach us about how we as a nation might or might not be able to deal with something like climate change and a um a sort of pandemic of megafires. Well, the, you know, there are commonalities between the the climate issue and and coronavirus, and you know, even between you know a specific aspect of the climate issue like wildfires and, and the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and we've uh, you know done a few stories looking at. Um, the ways that uh, these things overlap and what can we learn from the response to the coronavirus pandemic that we can apply to climate. And, you know, one thing that I think is, you know, perhaps a silver lining in this, you know, we, we have to wait to see, but the idea that, you know, we need to pay attention to what the science tells us. Um, you know, we need to, you know, do the best 
calculations that we possibly can with the best science that we possibly can. And then, you know, we need to act on that science and maybe move some of these decisions uh, out of the political realm and more into the, you know, here are the range of responses that we can have based on what science is telling us. Um, so I think that's really important, and that's you know one of the great things about working at Inside Climate News is um, I am working with veteran journalists, um, which is terrific. You know I spent my life in newsrooms and then taught journalism, and um, it's just so exciting to be working with people who are just really really good journalists, know how to get documents, and know how to do a great interview and how to find these stories. But I'm also dealing with great journalists who have solid science backgrounds and are devoted to covering climate change uh, really intensively, but doing it in a way that is um, um, valuable to the reader at large. So these are not wonky stories. These are not um, really uh, dense stories. These are stories that the average reader can read and understand. And that's really exciting to me at, at Inside Climate News. And one other aspect that we've looked at is, you know, this idea that flattening the curve for the coronavirus is not that different than, say, flattening the curve for climate change. That some of the things that we've done uh, for uh, to deal with the coronavirus, for instance, the you know everybody working at home and how much telecommuting um, uh, we're doing, and and trust me, it's not that that's the way I prefer to work. I've started to dream in Zoom, where you know my dreams look like the Hollywood squares, you know, because I've spent so much time staring at screens with a bunch of faces on them. I've but had the same experience. Really yeah, that's. But that also, you know, that might be something that we can carry on after this a little bit. You know, some companies may recognize that, hey, we don't have to have these people coming into the office. We were really productive with them working at home. And that's that can have a substantial impact on our emissions. Um, so there's a variety of things like that that we've done um, for the coronavirus that maybe we can repurpose after the coronavirus crisis has passed or we've managed to deal with it. Um, to have a positive impact on climate change as well. So do I hear you, um, do I hear somewhat of a, an, an optimist when it comes to climate change in, in you? Or, um, or, or, or is, that, is, <laughs> is, the, is that a label that we would want to put on a journalist, a, a optimist or pessimist? Um, I'm about as jaded a journalist as you can find. So, you know, when I'm talking with my peers, you know, we are grumbling and as negative as we can be. Trust me, I've got friends that, you know, will just tell me to shut up and, uh, you know, I've heard enough. Um, but I'm optimistic in, for myself, I'm optimistic because I work with people that are very passionate about this, that really are trying to make a difference and, and getting traction in making a difference. And so, yeah, um, uh, um, in, in the big picture, it's really easy to get overwhelmed and think, oh, my God, what are we going to do? In the smaller picture in my own life, I can get up in the morning and say, hey, I'm working with this reporter on this story and this story in its small way has the potential to have some real impact. And so I look for the day-by-day -day granular wins rather than thinking in terms of, oh, my God, we're never going to solve climate change. Well, that's not my job. I'm not here to solve climate change. I'm here to work with a team of really great journalists to try to make incremental gains on the climate issue. And, you know, when we have a win, you know, we've had some really good stories in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm optimistic. I feel great. And inside climate news, I just want to... Um let people know that, you know, you guys are an independent, not-for-profit, not nonpartisan, straight-up journalistic news organization, and you guys cover everything from clean energy to nuclear energy, environmental science, carbon, uh, law policy, public opinion. You really look at the climate crisis uh, from a broad perspective, in, in my opinion. Yeah, no, we, we uh, have... 
uh, a team of reporters. There's about 20 of us uh, in in management and uh, and in the reporting staff, and we have real specialists. You know, we have somebody who covers the oil and gas industry intensively. We have somebody who covers you know emissions and short-lived climate pollutants intensively. We have a reporter who is an expert on the Arctic. And uh, that's really exciting. You know, I, I worked in environmental journalism, you know, for decades. And it was usually me trying to figure out how do I convince these editors in this newsroom that this is a cool story, you know. And often the, the description I wrote about my story before I did it had to be the most exciting writing I did because I had to hook my editors before I could get permission to do the story. Uh-huh. Um, and now it's the opposite. I go into my news meeting with this team of people and I get my mind blown every day. How did you find that out? You know, and so that's really exciting. I mean, it's an, it's intimidating too because you know some of these are reporters who are much younger than me and you know have a lot of energy and you know every day I go into one of our news meetings via Zoom, I leave it going, "Oh my god, we have a bunch of great stories going that I had no idea about." And that's really exciting. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to encourage the listeners to to go to uh, Inside Climate News and check out their reporting because I've I've been reading that for several years and um, and have been very impressed and learned a lot from there. You know, I could talk to you forever about all this stuff, but um, we do. I know you've got you've got your own job um, that we've been talking about here. So I just have one last question, and that is, um, you know, are you working on another book? Do you have another book in you? Are what are you thinking about? Um, I, you know, I, I was, uh, working on another book, uh, you know, just at the preliminary stages of it when the coronavirus hit and, um, and I'll probably get by, back to that, but the, the landscape kind of changed right now. I am working on a, a feature about, uh, an expedition, um, it, to the Arctic. It's the largest, um, research expedition to the Arctic, um, in history, um, it's uh, an icebreaker that was frozen into the Arctic sea ice near the North Pole, and the coronavirus stranded hundreds of scientists on this expedition, and they've been desperately trying to get home while continuing their, their science. And it's, uh, it's uh, kind of an adventure in climate science that, um, you know, I hope gives people an idea of how hard and really dangerous some of the work to figure out what we can do about the climate and what's going on is, and you know how you know the the incredible lengths that some of the scientists that are trying to solve these problems will go to to try to find answers. Oh, that's great! That's exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we will definitely link to that in our um, um, in our notes on this show on SoundCloud. And Mike, thanks for chatting with me. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, and uh, hopefully our next conversation will be out on the land down in New Mexico or up here in Colorado when we can actually talk face-to-face. I would love that. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico, edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.taoslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.